If you would, please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. You'll find on page 1001 of the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Mark, chapter 6, where we'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 45. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach uh, on Psalm 29. As you might remember, that sermon was titled, The Storm Doxology. It's the psalm where David, in his mind, sort of imagines a storm that begins out at sea in the Mediterranean. It comes crashing over the cedars of Lebanon. It it breaks the cedars, and then it comes sweeping over Israel, and then finally dissolves in the southern borders, in the wilderness of Kadesh in the south. And David, unlike really anyone else alive at that time, other than a few other Jews, understood that the storm was not God, but that it was a revelation of God. So virtually every culture around David uh, would see these magnificent storms and would imagine uh, men or something like men having battles with each other, or they would come up with some uh, pagan, idolatrous understanding of what what was going on there. But David, uh, being freed from all that by the Holy Spirit and through his Abrahamic faith, He was able to understand, of course, that the storm was not God. But what he says in that psalm is that though the storm is not God, the voice of the Lord is revealed in the storm. We took a few moments during that sermon to just touch on uh, that the deep theology of the storm that Scripture offers to us. It's a theology that begins in the book of Genesis with creation, where we're told that the Spirit hovered over the darkness of the deep, And the picture is very much of a sea and its darkness and its chaos. And the word of God is spoken and brings out of that uh, the world that we have today, of course, a place of order. It's then a picture that follows to Sinai, where once again we find uh, storm clouds and thunders and lightnings on Mount Sinai. The Lord's presence once again is there. His word is there. He passes by Moses uh, in a storm of sorts, in cloud and in darkness It comes to us just again and again and again throughout Scripture. It appears even in the book of Revelation. And so we saw that the storm and the waters, the winds, uh, these things are tied very closely to our God and to his greatness. And what I've tried to do since then, once already and now again tonight, is to show how Christ fulfills Psalm 29, Psalm 107, so many other passages of the Old Testament that speak about God walking on the waves, of God being able to still the storm, of the storm being a revelation of his goodness and his power. And so once again, I want to do that tonight for the last time, uh, take you to one more passage, one I know you're familiar with, and I think one of the most powerful moments in all the Gospels, Jesus walking on the water. So if you would please stand And let's read this uh, familiar but wonderful passage together. Again, Mark 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, he that is Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were, making, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, that we confess that like the disciples, we are often hardened against your truth. We miss even what is obvious. They had just seen Christ feed 5,000, and yet they had not learned the lesson there. So Jesus put them to see. And so we pray tonight that you would put us to see spiritually and reveal your son and that he would pass by through the preaching of the word and through the sacrament of the table and we would behold some of his glory and his grace together. We pray, Father, that you would do this so that he would be magnified and we would be built up in our faith and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you look at the verses right before our text, you'll notice that Jesus did had just uh, fed the 5,000. Uh, this was uh, one of Jesus' greatest miracles. It's one of the only, I think it is the only miracle that is actually um, reported in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the only miracle in all four. And that makes sense because it was a miracle of profound implication. Remember, this is the time of the Passover uh, Jerusalem is swelling with pilgrims. Uh, Jewish spirits are high. The religious interests of everyone are on a, on a knife edge. And Jesus comes, and in the middle of this uh, very tense and wonderful time, he, he takes a huge group of people out into a sort of wilderness and then feeds them with heavenly bread. And we're told that 12 baskets were left over. Uh, that is not unintentional. None of Jesus' deeds were unintentional. But rather, it showed that not only was he a new Moses who could feed the people in the wilderness, but his feeding was better than Moses's. If you remember your Exodus history, you know that the manna would come down and it would always be just enough for what Israel needed. But here the picture Mark wants us uh, to pick up on. And remember, Peter is really the one behind the writing of the Gospel of Mark. So I think we can fairly say Peter wants us to see here is the way in which Jesus is the greater Passover and the greater Moses. Not just providing uh, bread, but bread and meat. And not just providing enough, but providing uh, above and beyond what they could think or ask. This miracle was so compelling, and you can understand if you can put yourself in the place of these people, you can pick this up. It was so compelling that it created an immediate stir among these 5,000 people to take Jesus and make him king, to set him up as a new Davidic ruler, to acknowledge him as the messianic Davidic king they'd been longing for. We know this not so much from Mark, but from John's account Here's what John wrote. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain to be by himself alone. 
we have good reason to believe that not only was this the will of the thousands of people who had just been fed, it was also the will and the desire of his disciples. They were caught up in this nationalistic fever. Look at verse 45 of our text. Immediately, and it just doesn't come across strongly enough in Greek or in English, let me make it a little stronger. Immediately, he forced, he made, he compelled his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He compelled them to leave. We know that the disciples from other texts wanted Jesus to be king. They would have welcomed this move by the 5,000 to appoint him as king. Peter, remember, uh, rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him of the cross. And Peter later takes up a sword and even attacks someone with a sword in the misunderstanding and the belief that Jesus will be king in this way. We know that this idea that Jesus would be a messianic king like this uh, was with the disciples. It was burned into their hearts. It was with them even at the crucifixion. It's why so many of them abandoned him. They did not know what it meant. They didn't know what to think. You might remember from Luke's gospel how Jesus meets two disciples on the road and, and they're in mourning and, and Jesus veils himself and says, why are you upset? They say, well, we thought this guy who just died in Jerusalem, Jesus was the Messiah, but he's dead. He was crucified. They, they had nothing in their minds about the crucifixion. They could not imagine that Jesus would win his crown through a cross. And so we can kind of imagine at the end of the section right before this, that the disciples are going with the crowds now to make Jesus king. They have fully misunderstood his identity. Jesus has now for many chapters been seeking to show to them that he is not simply a new Davidic king come to overthrow Rome, but rather to give to them his true identity. His true identity is the theme of the Gospel of Mark, and that identity simply is he is the son of God. He is not simply a Davidic king, but he is the divine son of God. This was a conclusion they did not want to come to. You see it all through the Gospels. It was an unnatural conclusion for them. And yet again and again, he forces them to see it. Well, at this very moment, he's fed the 5,000. They are all wrapped up in this misunderstanding. And it's in this context that Jesus gives them a theophany. That's what we're reading and studying tonight. In verses 45 through 52, you have what really can, I can't come up with a better word than theophany. Theo means God, Fanny means a revelation. So theophany, a revelation of God. And that's what we have in these verses. It's not just a miracle. In fact, there isn't really here a, a normal miracle. It's not a healing. It's not turning water into wine. Nor is it a stunt. As, as if Jesus is just saying, well, look what I can do. I can, I can walk across the water. Rather, what he was doing was highly symbolic. It came right out of the Old Testament. And the disciples in the boat knew what it meant. They had grown up their entire lives reading passages that told them only Yahweh walks upon the waves. And so what Jesus is doing is coming to his disciples right now in the midst of all their misunderstanding, all their uh, foolishness, really, 
about who he is and revealing himself in power. That's what I want to look with you at briefly tonight before we come to the supper and really want to just break it down into two simple sections. First of all, the preparation and then the revelation. There's a, there's a preparation. It's very important. And then there's the revelation itself. So let's look first at the preparation that Jesus put into place before he gives them this theophany. And you find that in verses 45 through the first part of 48. Immediately, he made or forced his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Once again, just as we saw last time with Jesus and the storm, you remember how I noted then Jesus deliberately has done this. We need to note that he has put his disciples once again, as he does to us in impossible situations, in positions of suffering, in positions where they have to trust, where they have to believe, where they have to struggle. The disciples Uh, the text suggests here, have no interest in crossing the lake at night. They want to enjoy this wonderful moment of celebration. They've been kind of outcasts, and suddenly they have 5,000 people, and it's probably more than that. 5,000 may here just refer to the men only as heads of home. We're not sure, but thousands of people are excited about Jesus just as they have been. And they seem to want to cling to that public victory and to just sort of bask in the glow of all that has happened. But Jesus insists once again to put his followers in a boat and to put them out at night on the lake. And then he, again, very intentionally does not go with them. He could have done that as he did in the storm. Remember, he slept in the boat during the storm, but this time he puts himself up on a mountain to pray and to watch. He can observe from there their frustration. It's Passover time, so a full Passover moon, as there would have been at that time of year, illuminates the lake. And from his vantage point, he can see that they are making no progress. Now, once again, read carefully. This is not a storm. We have a tendency as Christians to conflate, combine these two stories, but they're not the same. They're not in danger of drowning here. That's missing the point. Instead, the text says they're rowing torturously. That's the word. And they're getting nowhere. They're rowing against or into the wind. And Jesus leaves them, doesn't he? He leaves them for hours to do this to just struggle along and get nowhere. The fourth watch that it mentions here where Jesus finally comes to them is between 3 and 6 a.m. in that time period. So he leaves them for many hours on the lake, rowing hard, getting nowhere. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. Now you have to ask yourself, why does someone like Jesus, who knows all things, has all power, why has he sent his disciples onto a lake to go nowhere, to just row and and really not progress. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? The context of Mark 
It's very clear, I would say. It is a picture, and it's meant to be for them, a picture of their own spiritual life at this point. They're not getting anywhere. They're stuck. That's what's been happening for five chapters now. They can't understand who Jesus is. And so he has them here straining at the oars and sailing into a a windstorm, but not making any progress. It was a parable. They were meant to see, they were supposed to see in this moment, their inability in their own strength to make any progress in the Christian life. They cannot progress spiritually in understanding who he is without his help. They cannot make progress in ministry. They can't get to the other side and start preaching or doing anything. Why? He's put them in a timeout of frustration and exhaustion. And understand this, he's setting them up for the moment when he's going to go striding right by them, walking across the waves. What's the message there? See what you can do without me? Nothing. See what I can do? The windstorm's no object to me. I just walk right across the water. Do you see the lesson he's teaching them? This is all very intentional. That storm we studied last time from Mark 4, the storm, that was meant to scare them and test their faith. Did they believe Jesus' promises? Did they believe that with him in the boat they were safe? That was the purpose of the storm. The purpose of the exhausting waves or the windstorm here is to demonstrate instead their weakness, their futility, their hardness of heart, and their inability to progress. They could not progress. And that is why Jesus will walk over the same waves they can't overcome to show his power over the very frustrations and limitations they met. He put them in the storm, And he puts us in the storm to show us our insufficiency, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will be prepared to receive and to understand his glory. It was not an accident. It was not a careless thing. Jesus had just shown by feeding 5,000 people that he cared very deeply for our physical needs. He knew they were exhausted, and he had compassion on that. He knew when he asked them to cross the lake, he knew it was an impossible mission. He knew they couldn't cross that night, but he wanted them humble. He wanted them exhausted. He wanted them, as he often does with us, at the end of their rope. The church has always, from the earliest of times, seen in these particular scenes of Jesus in the boat, a wonderful and vivid picture of our reality, what we experience. I can't prove this, but maybe this is why when you go into a cathedral, the part of the cathedral where everyone sits is called the nave. As you may know, the nave translated means ship or boat. We are in the boat, in a turbulent, frustrating, and difficult sea of life. But Christ, from heaven, sees and cares. And what a help to know tonight that Jesus prays for us, even now. To know that he prays for us in heaven as our high priest. That he is our mediator. 
I can think of no greater example. I don't think there is a greater example of this than the one given to us in the book of Revelation. Remember, John is caught up into heaven. And what does he see? What does he see almost right away? He sees Jesus dressed as a high priest, moving between the candlesticks, caring for the candlesticks. And we learn later that these candlesticks are churches. And that Jesus, in his glorified state, is caring for these local churches. He knows them. Just like Jesus on the mountain, even as he's fellowshipping with the Father in prayer, he's seeing at a great distance his disciples on the ship of life flailing away and getting nowhere. So today, Jesus' heart in heaven is still for his disciples in the sea of life. As John sees Jesus moving around the candlesticks, Jesus then begins to speak to John. And, And what Jesus shows in his words is a profound understanding of what his disciples are going through. He says things to, for example, to the church in Smyrna. He says, I know your works. And the church in Pergamos, he says, I know where you live. I know what you're going through. And what follows is a, is a whole section of Jesus talking about these individual churches and exactly what's happening in them and exactly what's wrong and who's suffering and how they're suffering. He sees them at a distance, as it were, and knows their need. In fact, with Jesus, distance is something of an illusion, isn't it? For he's always with his people. He always prays for his people, and he prays for us. He knows grace, just as he knew those churches, our problems. He knows, as he said to the one church, I know where you live. I know your works. And so Jesus is shown to us here as a loving Savior, who puts his disciples out to sea, but does not do so with a cold or hard heart, but with the love of a savior and shepherd. That is the preparation. Now see, second of all, the revelation really begins in the end of verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, so around 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This was not a trick. This was not a funny little display of power. It was a theophany, like the transfiguration, like the calming of the storm. It was something beyond what any prophet, priest, or king had ever done in the history of the Bible. It was an overwhelming display of Jesus' divine power, glory, and identity. In the background, once again, is their misunderstanding wanting Jesus to be king, wanting him to become an Israelite king, to save them from their enemies. But here, once again, Mark is showing us from this story that Jesus is the Son of God with all the power and authority of God. The disciples would have known this instantly. They knew and they had been trained since they had been in VBS as little kids or whatever they have equivalent of VBS in those days. They learned psalms like Psalm 107. 
and Psalm 77, and passages like Job 9, which Elder Castillo read. They knew these psalms. They knew these stories. They knew that God and God alone was the one who walked on the waves. In fact, the text of Mark is incredibly similar to the text of Job 9 that Elder Castillo read. In fact, it may be just a paraphrase or even a quotation that Mark is using here. Do you remember those words from Job? Job writes, he commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. Now read what happened. Jesus, verse 48, was going by them. He was passing by. He was not initially going into the ship. Rather, he's passing by as a revelation of his glory. This is a theophany. He is passing by in his glory, in fulfillment of Job 9 and many other passages. But because their hearts were hard, verse 52, they thought it was a ghost. They did not understand it. And so then and then only does he turn from passing by, enter the ship, and make himself known to them. When this was over, they understood. They had to understand something of the glory of Christ. They knew their Bible. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your ways are in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. Or Isaiah 43, maybe a passage you've never connected before to Mark 6, but you should. Isaiah 43 and Mark 6 go together. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through mighty waters. This is the way of the Lord, and this is how God demonstrates his glory to his servants again and again. And the disciples, as they reflected on this, came to understand this was the Son of God, not just the Messiah. As you think through the rest of your Old Testament, you have to acknowledge that again and again, this is the way God reveals himself to his servants, he passes by. Think of Exodus 33. Again, the same language. Moses is what? He's overwhelmed with ministry. He's exhausted with the ministry of the people. He's frustrated and he's feeling hopeless. And what remedy does God prescribe? He makes all his glory pass by. Same language. First Kings 19 Elijah is frustrated. He's been serving the Lord faithfully. He's called down fire on Mount Carmel. It was supposed to be the high point of his career, and yet the people did not understand or believe. And in frustration, tired of the labor, he cries out to the Lord, let me die. I'm rowing on the lake and I'm getting nowhere. Just let me die. I can't progress. Here's God's response. Here's that story. So Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. What's he saying? Useless. It's hopeless. Then God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. In both cases, along with Job and others, the ministers 
disciples had lost sight of things. They were frustrated and they were afraid. And in all cases, God's response in such moments is to unveil himself, to give a fresh vision of his glory and goodness. That is why this is a theophany. It drove home and confirmed Jesus's words. He made known himself to them in verse 50. Be of good cheer, he said. It is I, do not be afraid. The word here is in Greek, ego emi, literally translated I, I am. The language of Yahweh, I am what I am. The self-existent God of all things. Can you now see what Mark is writing, what he means here? He's writing because the disciples witnessed the glory of Jesus in a way that forced them, compelled them, almost against their will, really. Verse 52 tells us their hearts were hard. They didn't want to go down this road, but they were forced and compelled by what they saw to eventually come to this conclusion. Unlike what we probably think today, the disciples did not expect the Messiah to be divine. They did not expect him to be the son of God in that sense. They simply expected a human king who would defeat Rome, set up a kingdom, and rule over all people. They persisted in that hard-heartedness right up to and during Christ's crucifixion. And that's why they pretty much gave up on him when he was crucified. That was the kind of liberator they wanted and the kind we often want as well. But that is not the one pictured here. He is the son of God, giving his glory even to his frustrated disciples who can get nowhere. And so as we leave this scene, once again, we see them overwhelmed. They'd seen, they'd seen him heal. They'd seen him do great miracles. But these things were beyond anything any prophet had ever done. Verse 51 puts it very well. They were greatly amazed, greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they marveled. They wondered I'm reminded of the great words of John's gospel, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory as it passed by, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To know God the Father, as we do as Christians, through the climactic revelation of Jesus Christ, is to have God the Father pass by us. But unlike what Job thought, Jesus has made known the Father to us, hasn't he? You remember what Job said? He said, if God passes by, I won't see him. I can't take that in. He was, in that context, he was just confessing the greatness of God and saying, how could I take in the God who made the world? the God who walks on the waves, the God who calms the storm. Job was saying, God is wonderful. God is mighty. God is somewhat unapproachable. He's, he's beyond me. He dwells in perpetual light that is beyond my comprehension. The way back to Eden, he was saying, is shut and guarded. And there's no going back to that kind of in intimacy. He was honoring God. He was worshiping God. It's a wonderful chapter. But he could not imagine a situation where God's glory would pass by and it could be seen. But what has happened? In Jesus, 
the eternal God has come down and passed by, and we did behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is why the curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped in half, because God once again dwells with man, dwells with us. And that is why you and I are alive, why we are here tonight. Therefore, brothers and sisters, if we understand these things, there are no pointless trips across the lake. You're alive so that you can know and relate to the God of the universe through his only begotten and divine son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why you're in this boat, so that his glory might pass by you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving to us this wonderful scene from the life of Christ. And we do through your word and with the disciples observe his glory, see his glory, hear of it. And it gives us hope for the storms and difficulties of life. We thank you, Father, that though you are great, yet you have manifest yourself to us in the person of your son. And we do look to him and to him alone to reveal to us your glory and goodness. Father, it is your son, the Lord Jesus, who established now the table before us. This is one of the ways he makes known to us his glory and his goodness. Open our hearts to receive it. Sanctify us to it. For we pray and ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I want to invite